Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 11. And they heard these things, and he proceeded to tell a parable. Because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately, he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minutes and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. Verse 16. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your menace has made ten minutes more. He said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little. You shall have authority over ten cities. The second came, saying, Lord, your minute has made five minutes. And he said to him, you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here's your minna, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you're a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Then why then did you not put your money in a bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the minna from him and give it to the one who has the ten minna. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minutes. I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you this morning asking, Lord, that you would teach us, Lord, that you would instruct us through your word. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would convict us of sin, that you would move us to repentance and to faith and trust in you. Lord, I pray that you would make us an obedient people who are obedient to your word, who do not look at your word simply as, as signposts to either uh, listen to or to ignore, but we would see them as your word, as your law, as your instructions on our life, Lord, and that we would follow them and that we would obey them, Lord. Lord, we pray for those who are not with us, and then we have many people here this morning that are, not, are absent this morning because they're traveling, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would watch over them as they're away. Lord, I pray that you would encourage them this morning. Pray, Lord, that they would um, not see this time away as, as this vacation from you as well, but that, Lord, we are called wherever you send us, wherever we go, Lord, to be disciples and to be followers of you and to be missionaries who, who proclaim the gospel, even if we're on vacation, even if we're away. Lord, I pray that you again instruct us through your word. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, the title of this, uh, this sermon is um, The Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Long Obedience in the Same Direction. It actually is a quote from a very unusual source to use in a sermon. I admit that. But the quote, uh, that, that title, that, that phrasing comes from uh, Nietzsche, who is a, an atheistic philosopher, a German philosopher from the uh, uh, kind of the end of the 19th century. 
uh, a man who did not believe in God, believed God was dead, as he says. But he has this quote. It says, the essential things in heaven and earth is that there should be long obedience in the same direction. There thy by results and has always resulted in the long run something which has made life worth living. It was interesting when we were uh, in California, me and my family, we went up to Sequoia National uh, Park, which has the, it's kind of confusing, okay? We think that the, 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 the biggest trees are the redwoods. That's in San Francisco area, not in Sequoia. Sequoia has the sequoia trees, which are really thick. They're actually thicker than red, uh, redwood trees. Redwood trees, are, and they're kind of in the same family. But, you know, honestly, I don't really know the categories of trees. I just know there's big trees and small trees, and sequoias are big trees. And uh, they're very wide. Um, and while we were there, there was a group of men that were taking a picture near a sign, and we were asking them, like, what they were doing. And they were going, so you can hike from Sequoia National Park to Mount Whitney, which is the largest, tallest mountain in the continental USA. Uh, you actually could hike there. There's a trail that goes all the way, and it's 60 miles. It's a 60-mile hiking trail. I've never hiked a 60-mile hiking trail. I don't know if anyone of you in this room has done something like that. So that seemed pretty amazing. And there was a sign that said, Mount Whitney, 60 miles. As, and then you took this hiking trail. And they were taking this picture, and we were talking uh, to them about it, that they were taking seven days as a company, as a group, and I can't remember how many, it was like less than 10 uh, men who lived in Irvine, California, that were going to take this whole week off from work and travel, and, I mean, and hike and camp outside and, and actually hike to the top of Mount Whitney. I think that's a great representation of kind of the Christian life and kind of what Nietzsche is saying, the long obedience in the same direction, that they were going to take this 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 journey, this probably difficult journey of hiking that many miles of a seven days to be able to get to one destination, which is the top of Mount Whitney. And then in life, we, we tend to think sometimes, I think a lot of people think that things just kind of happen quickly. Like, I want something, and therefore I must have it immediately. But that is not the Christian life. The Christian life is not getting everything you want immediately or at once. Here's a quote from a, a psychologist. He says, The simplest and most ancient of human truth, namely that life is an arduous and tragic struggle, that what we call sanity has a great deal to do with competence earned by struggling for excellence, with compassion hard won by confronting conflict, and with modesty and patience acquiring through silence and suffering. Really, to be honest, life is about the struggle. It's about growing. It's about dealing with conflict. It's about dealing with failures and learning from those failures and overcoming those failures and, and moving towards excellence in something, not overnight, but over a long period of time. It is a long journey. It's a long journey in the same direction to some same goal. The Christian life is a pilgrimage not an overnight vacation. It's a pilgrimage of long obedience to the commands, instructions, and guidance of our Master, Lord, and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me do, let me do this real quickly. I know these are kind of basic terminology, but I think it's important just to set some, some definitions to some important terminology. What is salvation? Salvation is spiritual salvation by God through Christ 
from the judgment of God for your sinful disobedience. You deserve judgment by God, but God, through his mercy and grace, offers you salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. And there's salvation in no one else but Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be lost? All are born into this world, separated from God due to sin. We're helpless to fix our spiritual condition. We are born hostile to God. We're born not being able to submit ourselves to God's law. We cannot... We cannot please God. We are helpless. We are lost. And it's not for God's grace and love through Jesus Christ. We would never be able to worship God. We would never be able to submit to his will. Therefore, we would never be able to obey him in any way. And the reason why I present these definitions is because the passage right before verse 11, that, that pastor didn't preach last week, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This was the purpose and ministry of Christ, to seek and save the lost. Jesus is represented in this parable that he instructs as the nobleman, and he comes, the master, the Lord, the king of kings, the Lord of love, comes to seek and save the lost. And let me give you a, a, a just a simple fact. We are all lost. We come into this world lost. You, me, everyone who's ever existed in this earth Come into this world lost and helpless in desperate need of salvation, and salvation only comes through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the rightful king who saw and saved the lost through his death and has bestowed his wealth to his disciples to do his work on his behalf until his, until his return. So here's kind of the, the main idea here. Do you view Jesus as the rightful Lord over your life? Do you view Jesus as the good and rightful Lord over your life? How do you view Jesus Christ? He says he came to seek and save the lost. Do you, how do you view him? How, do you view him properly? Do you view him correctly? Do you view him as the good and rightful king over your life? And as the parable says, there are some, there are many, who reject him as the good and rightful king over their life. The first point is this, the sin of Christian tourism, the sin of Christian tourism. That is kind of the, the introductory point to this parable. Why does Jesus give this parable? He kind of gives us the answer in verse 11. And the people and the crowd, they, they hear these things, and he proceeds to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear Immediately, the, the crowd, as they're journeying through to Jerusalem, the next passage after this passage is the triumphal entry. They, they are following Jesus to Jerusalem for the Passover, and they are prepared. They are eagerly awaiting Jesus to usher in God's kingdom. They, basically, that Jesus was going to overthrow the Roman Empire and the and the and the kind of the, the 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 political structure that was over over the people at time that were oppressing the people that were oppressing the poor that were oppressing uh, people spiritually and physically G they were ready for Jesus to vanquish them all and take over and 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 be in power that and so they were they were entering Jerusalem they were supposing that God's kingdom would come immediately that they they thought it was coming now that they weren't going to have to wait 
years or, or, or decades or centuries. Instead, it was going to happen immediately. This was their expectation. This is what they were eagerly waiting. As if Jesus was a new Samson or Jesus was a new Saul or David or Joshua or Moses and that he was going to lead the people into Jerusalem and God's kingdom would be established physically. And the belief is is that anything worthwhile can be acquired at once, right? This is an issue with society today. We, we believe that we can somehow fix our problems immediately or we can satisfy our needs immediately. Maybe it's fitness, right? I know you have some uh, Kyle's a, as a fitness instructor. People think they can get what? Physically fit? What? Immediately? Oh, it's just I take a few classes and immediately I'll have a six pack and I'll be strong and I'll be healthy. And as some of you know who do fitness instruction, that's just not the truth, is it? It's a lifestyle change. It takes time to get healthy. But too many, too many people feel or view that they can just make immediate change to their life. That they can have expertise in a subject immediately. They can read one article or read one art, uh, one, go to one website, and now all of a sudden they're a medical expert or any of these type of things. And I, someone who, played, who got back into golf the last few weeks, I was uh, shooting golf balls out here, and I'm like, wow, my, my shot's pretty good, man. I'm going to go to the golf course. I'm gonna be, this is going to be easy, and I go out there and I play horribly, right? You can't immediately be good at something. You just start picking up. But our attention spans are so limited. I think the, the, the statistics say that people's attention spans are 30 seconds. And I think that attention span is getting less and less and less, that you can't even watch an eight-second ad for a YouTube video. You're like flipping out, right? Our attention spans are so small. And we, we view, there's people that view that even with the Christianity, they'll go to church or they'll go to a conference and they think, okay, now I know everything about Christianity. I, I, everything in my life is fixed. I'm right with God. Everything is good. And all my life, everything is going to be just a blessing after this. Everything, I'm gonna, everything that I need and everything I need, I, that I need to know it will immediately happen at once. But yet the Christian life is a maturing over long spans of time. The evidence of mature Christian discipleship takes time. And the question is, is not will you immediately change or when will I be fixed or will you, will you remain faithful through the long journey? Will you be obedient through the long journey in the same direction? That's my problem with like uh, Christian conferences, like passion conference. Like you take these uh, teenagers and you give them this spiritual high and they think, all right, now my Christ the Christian life will be just so easy after this. Everything has been fixed. These quick and emotional highs that lead to what? Typically quick falls. The Christian life is not about one moment of conference and all this kind of, uh, all this kind of like they stick you with, a, with adrenaline of spiritual high and that's how it's going to fix all your problems. But yet the Christian life is what? A long obedience in the same direction. The Christian life is a call for long obedience in the same direction. We're called to persevere through trials, which was the reality of the early church and continues to be the reality for the most believers today, is that we have to go through struggles. Uh, it's not just immediate, as the Israelites in this particular story, they thought God's kingdom was just immediately going to happen. But yet, what did they find out it happened? Jesus dies on the cross. He raises from the dead. He then ascends into heaven. And the early church is, is what? Persecuted by the same authority that they thought Jesus was going to overthrow. 
The second point is a nobleman, and this is when Jesus kind of unfolds this parable that he is telling to uh, these people, this crowd that are following him, when they think that Jesus is just going to establish his kingdom immediately. He had no thought that he's going to die on a cross or that he's going to be persecuted or, 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 or cut down by the Roman Empire. He thought, they thought Jesus was going to establish his kingdom. And so Jesus tells this parable. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive a kingdom for himself. He has this rightful claim to an inheritance. And he also doesn't say when he's going to return, right? He doesn't, doesn't say he's going to go off to this far country for a month and then return with his kingdom. It's undetermined how long he'll be gone to inherit this kingdom. We have no idea the time span of how far the journey is and how far the journey to come back. What he has to do, what the nobleman has to do when he gets there to, to obtain his kingdom. And so before he leaves, he calls his ten servants and gives them a little bit of money, about three months of wages, and gives them this money, it's a small amount of money, and tells them to do business while he's away. He gave them the same amount of money, one mina, which is three months of wages. He gives them the same amount of money to these ten servants and tells them quite clearly and quite simply, do business while I'm away. Invest my money and obtain profit for me, because they worked for him. They weren't independent contractors that he hired. Instead, they worked for him. They were servants of the nobleman. And before he leaves to go away for an undetermined amount of time to inherit a kingdom for himself, he tells them, do business while I'm away. Continue the work. He trusts them with a small amount of money, and he expects that they will grow his investment. Again, remember, this is not their money. It's the nobleman's money. He gives his money to them to invest on his behalf. They are to fulfill the command of the nobleman to bring honor to the nobleman until he returns. And again, he, they do not know how long he's going to be gone. It's not like, hey, I'm going to be gone for a weekend. All right, here's a little bit of money. Invest it the best way you can, and I'll be back. No, he doesn't tell them when he's coming back. He just says he will return. It's an unknown return. They are to be obedient in the same direction. They are to be obedient in investing his money while he's away to fulfill the calling of the master. And there's some important things you have to, to keep in mind, uh, the, some important uh, uh, um, posturing that you must have to fulfill this calling properly. If you go to Psalms 123, these are the, the uh, Psalms of Ascent. And it talks about, in this particular psalm, about servants and service to the Lord. And one of the important parts of this is that in verse 1 of 123, To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are throned in the heaven. There's an important part. To be successful in this calling, to be successful in obedience to the master, they must assume a certain posture. To lift their eyes to him, to see him as the authority, to see him as the master, as the nobleman, as the king. That is an important posture. If they see him as, yeah, he's just like us, he's just a normal guy, they're going to blow him off. 
They're going to blow off his command. They're going to blow off what he calls them to do. And they're not going to do anything with the money. They're not going to be assertive or confident in earning wages or earning profit for the nobleman. They're called to do as the nobleman commands. They're called to, to follow the command, to fulfill that command, and, and, and to see him as an authority over them and to be urgent in their service to the master. And I think it's important for us to learn here that as Christians, we are called to serve the Lord, going in that direction, being obedient to God, because why? He's an authoritative figure over us. He is the Lord. We are his creatures. We are servants of the Lord, and we are to follow the right master, which is God, and this is actually true freedom. The problem with the world is, is that people love freedom, but they're actually enslaved to the wrong master. That's the real problem. True freedom is actually following the right master and Lord. And following him obediently and well. Point number three is the citizens of his kingdom. We learn in this kind of small verse in the middle that the citizens that he's about to inherit, the kingdom that he's about to inherit, the citizens of that kingdom don't like him. They hate him, actually, it says. And they send a delegation after him and say, to tell him, we don't want you to be our king. We don't know the reason for their hatred of the nobleman. We have no idea why they don't want him to be their king. Yet, they reject him as their king. They're complainers, man. They're grumbling. We don't want this guy to be our king. We want someone else to be our king. It tends to kind of help you understand what a lot of people are thinking. They don't want to follow God. They don't want to follow him in any way. They just want to complain and they want to grumble. But what people are doing and they're grumbling and they're complaining is that they're unsatisfied with their master. They're unsatisfied with their Lord. And they're seeking salvation from horrible gods. That's the problem with most of the Israel and of the other, other nations during the Old Testament. They're always complaining. They're always grumbling. Why? Because the gods that they served stunk. They weren't very good. They didn't provide anything. Why? Because they're dumb. They have no eyes. They have no ears. They have no hearts. They're ignorant, foolish. I feel like most social media uh, uh, comments now are just people grumbling and complaining. It's like prayers to foolish gods, what, what a lot of comments are. is that They're so unsatisfied with their life, but the problem is, is they're serving the wrong master, and they're not obedient in the right direction. It's interesting about Israel is, what did Israel do? Very similar to this parable, they rejected God as their king in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Right? They, wanted another, they wanted a king like other nations. And what does God say to Samuel? Let them, let them have a king. What they're truly doing is rejecting me as their king. That's what it says. And actually, what, is, what does God do? In their wickedness, what does God provide? He provides a king. But then he promises a, a better king to come, right? So even in their wickedness, God provides grace, what, for his name's sake. And this is very similar to what we see in the rest of the gospel stories, that Israel rejects Christ, right? Through their rejection of Christ and their not wanting him to be their king and then leading him and, and, and cursing, hey, crucify him, crucify him. 
for, his, for God's great name, he uses that rejection for, to do what? To bring salvation into the world. The grounds of his grace, the standing witness to Israel's sin, becomes the standing witness of God's grace. So when we look at the cross, we see what? We see God, Israel's rejection of Jesus. But at the same time, what do we also see with the cross? We see the witness of God's grace on sinners. Isn't it interesting how God uses wickedness and wicked actions to actually be a, an action of grace to that same wickedness? He does it, why? For his name's sake. Thankfully, God does things for his name's sake. He does it for his glory. And so he lavishes his grace, why? For his name's sake. Pilgrims on a long journey whose struggles are not in vain and without purpose or meaning. He is doing all things for his name's sake, and he will not abandon his people ever. Even Israel, who rejected God as their king, God says, I will not abandon them. Even when they reject me, I will still show them grace. Why? For my name's sake. Are you a citizen of his kingdom, or do you reject his rightful claim over your life? He is the Lord. He is the king of kings. The Lord who has bestowed mercy upon us and we in our liberation lift our eyes to the master's commands and obey him and trust him. You have to put yourself in the situation. Are you a similar situation as these citizens who reject Jesus as the king? He is the rightful king. But how do you view him? Do you view him rightly? Do you view him as not only as a God of severeness and rigidness, but you see a God of mercy? Going back to Psalms 123, right? They serve the Lord, and he and it even talks about how he, 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 they actually command or call, call out to the Lord for mercy and mercy. They saw God as a merciful God, and it led them to what? Service. Obedience. We do not serve a God of hate. We do not serve of God who is rigid and severe. We serve a God who is faithful and full of steadfast love and full of mercy and grace. The fourth point is the servant of the nobleman. The nobleman returns. He's received his kingdom. I love this part. The citizens that sent a delegation obviously failed because he comes back with his kingdom. Their coup their protest doesn't work. It failed. He is king. And so when he returns, he desires to know the progress of his investment while he has been away. It's important here to remember, I don't know if you watch Shark Tank, but uh, sometimes you watch Shark Tank. These are not charities that are being presented on that show. These are businesses, right? So the, 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 the sharks will always say, we, this isn't a charity, right? We are, we, are, we are investing our money to do what? To produce money. This isn't a charity show. This isn't some kind of like reality show where it takes a poor family and they build a new home for them, right? That's a charity. Shark Tank is about businesses pitching their ideas and their businesses to investors to invest in them so that the investors make money. So the noblemen... This is not a charity. He gives him his money, and he expects a return on his investment. 
He has entrusted his wealth with these ten servants, and he has a right to expect that his money has been used to grow his wealth, honor, and glory. He wants to know that his servants do what he commanded. And again, we don't know how long he's been gone. Let's just say he was gone for five years. Five years. He expected, even though he was gone for five years, that they were obedient over those five years and that they fulfilled his command and invested his money. The first servant comes to him and says, Lord, your minna, your, your minna, not my minna, not someone else's minna, your minna, which you gave me, increased to 10 minas, which is 100% growth. If you're a shark and you invested your money in your company and you had 1,000% growth in his investment, he's going to be ecstatic. That's what, that's what investors want. They don't want to just give money away. It's not a charity. They want something back in return, their investment. They want a profit. So by that, he takes this servant who has been faithful to him and, and has been successful in his investment. He's elevated him to a nobleman. He's now given him 10 cities in his new kingdom. So the servant has now become a nobleman and has given him 10 cities to rule and have governance over. Seems like a pretty good master, doesn't he? A master who gives someone money and investment and they bring a return and he actually makes them a nobleman and gives them uh, authority over 10 cities. Seems like a pretty good nobleman. He's not, an ob- he's not obligated to do that. They're fulfilling their job as servants. The second servant says, Lord, I took your minna, your minna, not anyone else's, increased it to five minas. 500% of growth. That's, it's, that's incredible. 500% growth. And so what does he do? He elevates him to a nobleman in his, king, in his kingdom over five cities. His third servant comes. He says, Lord, I preserved your minna in a napkin. Here's what I think of this. When I think of napkin, I'm not thinking of some like special handkerchief that your grandfather gave you that's really nice and precious. What I'm thinking of is like barbecue ribs napkins, you know, that you eat and you just have them stacked all over the table. If you've been to Memphis, you've been to a barbecue place, they put napkins in front of you because you're always having to wipe your face, right? You have these napkins all over the table. I'm thinking he took one of those, stuck that money in it, put it in his pocket, and never touched it again. Which he produced what? No profit. He yielded no money from the money that was given by the nobleman to the servant. Again, we don't know how long he was gone. We think that, okay, he was gone for a week and they immediately invested. I think what happened is these servants had to struggle, had to strive, they had to persevere, had to take chances, was aggressive. The servants that produced money and profit, they trusted the noble's character, his his goodness, his, that he was an honorable man. They loved their master, and they wanted to, uh, to invest his money and produce a profit. Let's think of this in like some spiritual terms. What is a minna? I believe it's a, it's a spiritual gift given to Christ's people, to his disciples. And what is the business? To do the will of God from the heart, to love Christ, his word, to trust uh, trust God to do his will in your life, to love others with the love of Christ 
as, the, as John 20, 21 says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. I'm giving you my Holy Spirit. I'm giving you gifts to utilize, to expand my kingdom, to do my business while I'm away until I return. To care, to care deeply for Christ's people in his church. To make Christ and his gospel known through, uh, around, the, around the world uh, through words and through deeds. I think these are the terminology that are used in this story, in this parable, we can apply to the Christian life. That we do not know when Christ is going to return, but yet he has gifted us with his wealth. He has given us his spirit. We are to invest it. We are to use it to further his kingdom. And he will return. And he will ask, how have you used my wealth? The Lord will honor your service to him in the way he has called you. I think the problem with the, the third servant's view of, is the view of the nobleman. It's different than servant one and two. He fears the nobleman. He, he says, I feared you because you are a rigid and severe man. You are evil. You're a greedy man who takes what is not his and reaps what he did not sow. The reason the third servant did not invest the money that he received from the nobleman because he viewed the nobleman as bad, as unloving, as absent of love and grace. But if that were true, then why did the first and second servant do what they did? The problem with the view is that his view is contrary to the other servant's view of the nobleman. They invested his money aggressively. They knew the nobleman well. They listened to his teaching, his guidance, his wisdom, and invested wisely and with confidence. Why? Because they listened to the nobleman and they knew exactly what to do with the money when he left. And then what happened? They were rewarded by the nobleman. The third servant didn't know him. They, he, he, they didn't, he, he believed him to be bad, harsh, didn't listen to his teachings, didn't follow his wisdom, therefore viewed his money with contempt. And by that he was judged by the nobleman. He did not experience his abundance grace. The danger here is the discontent churchgoer. Because I don't believe the third servant is a follower of God. I don't think you can take that as, as that a, a, a believer can lose his salvation or things like that. I believe this is a discontent person who thinks they're religious but actually hates God. And this is a lot of people in the church who are discontent. They're discontent churchgoers. They're unsatisfied. They're frustrated. They blame God. They focus on their weaknesses, they're unproductive with their giftings, they're lazy, they're fearful of rejection and personal loss, and so they take what God has provided and they put it in a napkin, they put it in their pocket, and they don't do anything because they're discontent. They actually hate God and therefore are not moved to do anything or be obedient to him. The aftermath of this is that uh, they take the minute from that third servant and give it to the one who has ten. He lost what was given. The third servant and the citizens who protested his reign are then judged severely. They did not delight in the nobleman. They were judged severely by the rightful and good king. They viewed him wrongly. To them, the nobleman was not praiseworthy. They failed to see his immense value and experience his greatness, which would lead to joy and praise of his greatness. The issue 
for the church and for Christians is, will, will you be faithful to the long obedience in the same direction? You can come to church and be excited about Jesus and worship him. You can read your Bible for a year. You can do all those things in one year or maybe two years or three years. But will you be faithful over the long journey? Will you have long obedience in the same direction? Israel as a nation constantly struggled to be faithful to God because they viewed him wrongly. They viewed him wrongly. That's why they were so quick to align themselves with other nations. That's why they were so quick to worship other gods. It's because they didn't love God. They saw him as severe. They saw him as rigid. They feared him, not in the way that the Bible says is positive. They feared him, and so therefore they just ignored him and they were not faithful to him. They failed to be obedient to God's law. They saw him as harsh and unworthy of praise. So they trusted in other gods, nations, and wealth. They gave up quickly when things got tough. Will you give up? You may think you're a Christian today, but then five years when life gets tough, will you go, this is all crap. I'm not listening to this anymore. I'm done. You have failed to be obedient over the long haul. It's interesting about the Psalms, especially Psalms 120 um, through 134 and, the, and the, Psalms, the Psalms of Ascent. And this is the Psalms that talk about the people of Israel on their way to Jerusalem. And it's interesting about Jerusalem, it's on top of a mountain, right? So you go up to Jerusalem. Even though you're going maybe south, you're actually going up elevation-wise to Jerusalem. And that journey, you know, we think about the journey from the far-off regions of Israel and other parts of the Jews who would journey the long journey and pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship. Remember, they would go to the temple for worship at different festivals during the year, so they would have to journey there. The long journey, walking slowly to Jerusalem. The long journey to Zion. It's interesting about the Songs of Ascent if you go to Psalms 121, or actually 120, these, these songs, the, this section of Psalms uh, that talk about the ascent to Jerusalem, it starts in 120 with repentance. They recognize that they are living far away from God and therefore need to turn back to God in repentance. When, it, when we talk about discipleship, when we talk about the pilgrimage of a Christian, it all starts with repentance. It has to start with, I, have, I am a fallen, lost person, and I need forgiveness of my sins, and I need to turn back to God. It, all, it starts with that. To journey back to God, to journey with God, it starts with repentance of sin. And the second thing is faith in the Lord, Psalms uh, 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This is the song that they would sing on their way to Jerusalem as they journeyed, that God was with them as they journeyed to Jerusalem, and God will be with you as you live this life and this long obedience in the same direction, that God is with you. 
that he is your help. Your help does not come from the mountains. Your help does not come from the sun. Your help does not come from other people. Your help does not ultimately come through money. Your help does not ultimately come through accomplishments or jobs or any of these type of things. Help comes from the Lord, and the Lord is always with you. He never goes to sleep, never slumbers. And you're stumbling. God is there to pick you up. Nothing can separate you from God. His help never wanes. So in this long journey of the Christian life, with long obedience in the same direction, recognize that the Lord is with you in that journey. That the master is good, that the king is good, that he is rightfully the Lord of your life. And do not reject him. Do not distrust him. And Martin Luther writes his famous hymn, The Mighty Fortress is Our God. This is the Christian marching song. And, oh, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we shall not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not to him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. The problem with the servant, the problem with the citizens of the kingdom in the parable is they viewed God wrongly. They viewed Christ wrongly. And do you view Christ wrongly? You may be sitting here and thinking, yeah, 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 I'm a Christian, but at the same time in your heart, you actually do not love God. You think he's against you. He thinks he's for other people and not you. And so you sit there frustrated and discontent and unsatisfied, and you just sit there, and really what you are is you take that gift, and you put it in a napkin, you stick it in your pocket, and you just sit there, and you just stay silent and do nothing. You don't serve the Lord in any way. You don't trust him. You don't rely on him. And so the gifting is ever used. And what the problem is, you think, well, the gift isn't used. No, the problem is, is actually you're not a Christian in the first place because you don't love Christ. You don't love him. So you need to, right now, search your heart. If you are like this third servant, if you are like the citizens, it's not like you don't have any hope. It starts with repentance. It starts with repentance of sin, and then it goes to faith. Faith, not just in this one moment, but faith over a long obedience in the same direction. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for your word. I praise you, Lord, that you have brought us here this morning, Lord, to hear from your word. And this is a very uh, difficult passage, especially the way that it ends, Lord, the, the judgment upon the citizens and the serge servants. And while I'm, I don't think anyone in this room this clearly rejects you as king, but I think the third servant, Lord, this, this struggle of, I, 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 don't, I think God is just rigid and, and, and severe and evil and greedy, and I don't want anything, uh, I, I find that he's against me. What a poor view of who you truly are, Lord. You are full of mercy, you are full of love, that you are full of grace. That you have shown that grace on the, when you sent your son in the world to die for us. That we were lost and found because of Christ. That he loves his people. And he has bestowed upon them giftings and, and, and things that you have called them to. And will they respond in obedience to you? Will they respond in faithfulness to you? 
if this is anyone in this room, and I just pray that you, Lord, that you would lead them to repentance and lead them to faith. Lord, if they need to talk to someone, if they need to pray with someone, they would do that before they leave this day. Lord, that they would repent of their sin, they would repent of their wrong view of you, and they would be enlightened, Lord, about the truth of who you truly are, that you're full of mercy, and that, that mercy that you pour upon them, Lord, that would lead them to service to you, that they would love being a servant of you, Lord, and that you would use their giftings, Lord, to bring you honor and praise for your name's sake, that you would expand your kingdom through them. We pray that you would do that. We love you, Lord. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.